Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. We're so excited to bring you an interview with a filmmaker and a food activist who you are going to adore, Jian Yi, who is also the founder of the China Vegan Society and who knows more than anyone about the all-important topic of Chinese veganism. And this is a cool interview. Yeah, no, I like this interview. I, I really liked him. He's a really nice guy. It becomes clear occasionally as I was talking to him, everything in China is just so much bigger than it is everywhere else. It's just so crucially important that all of this activism is taking place in China because it's just so many, so many people. And the only reason it hasn't been more animals in the past is because people didn't have the money. And it's just bigger and bigger and bigger. So this is crucially important work. And I love the work he's doing. I love some of the ideas he has. So yeah, listen up to this one. Very cool. Uh, So we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But I had such a strange experience this past weekend. And I want to tell you about it. I've been a little bit behind on personal, uh, like, posting for my own social media. So much has been happening that I'm, I'm 10 years behind. Is that okay? (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) I'll catch up this afternoon. Yeah. Okay. That'd be great. What will, where will you start? Uh, yeah. So I am lucky enough to now, in addition to the other work I do, I have an ongoing gig as an actor in a murder mystery dinner theater. <laughs> and so you, if you, you want to see one of the oddest careers I on know, the face of the earth. But it's honestly exactly what I wanted to do when I was a kid, except, you know, maybe there are a few specifics that I didn't know about then. But like, it is kind of exactly what I wanted to do. Couldn't you just, like, if you really want to do this, can't you just go to dinner with people and pretend to be somebody else? Oh. Like, does it have to be in will, the theater? Will they pay me for doing that? <laughs> oh, you have to get paid. So right. I, I, you know, I host Weekend Edition for WXXI. And now I was like, well, I work on the weekends anyway. I might as well audition for this because it's on Saturday nights. And I, I, I got in. And so there's not like that much I can tell you because I've, I'm not allowed to talk about it too much, but I will say that I started as just, you know, pretending I'm a person in the audience, like going to dinner, down to waiting online to get in and checking in under a false name and sitting down. People just think I'm one of them until they realize I'm not. And like, so one of the things that happened is when when you're checking in, you get a little ticket with your meal on it. Because in, in advance of the event, you have to sign up for your meal. And there's a vegan meal. So obviously, I signed up for the vegan meal. And I have this little ticket. I'm kind of shocked that there's a vegan meal. I mean, that's kind of cool. Yeah, because it's it's at a hotel. Is it bad? Well, it tastes like conference food. I mean, it's it's like basically a, a plate of vegetables seasoned with like salt and pepper and maybe a little olive oil. And that's it. Were the other dinners just also kind of like wedding food? Yeah, yeah, basically. And then the dessert, they gave me a fruit salad. Honestly, I kind of liked it, but I don't like it for advocacy purposes. Like as a, as a vegan out there eating vegan food, it it looks like that's what vegans eat. But for me personally, I like eating vegetables and fruit, (laughs) but next time I'll just bring some air fried tofu and just like throw it on there. Uh, anyhow, so people are interrogating each other throughout the evening, like in between the kind of scripted parts. You know, you are, you are aware that this sounds like my idea of hell, like literally hell. Like like if yeah. I'm a very bad person, this is what I will do for the rest of eternity. Yeah, except for I want you to come anyway, though. Thank you. Thank you. Can I get some of the air fried tofu if I come? Sure, sure. So throughout the evening, my character kind of starts to unravel a bit. And someone was like, so are you really vegan? And I said, yes, of course. And they said, why? And I was like... At this point, did they know that you were an actor? Or yes. did they... Oh, they did. Throughout the evening, as the evening is going on. It became obvious that you yeah, were a player. Yeah. At some point, people started to figure it out. So they were like... Uh, why? And I said, because I don't believe that sentient creatures should be murdered. And I just thought it was so funny that I was like doing a murder mystery dinner theater as an actor where other people were eating murdered animals. And I just wanted to share that story because 
it, it's such a strange new form of advocacy for me. You never know when an activism opportunity will arise. Well, next time I do it, because it's an ongoing show on Saturday nights, next time I do it, I'm going to look around for the other people with the orange ticket because I will know that they're vegans. Now, of course, I can't really talk to them for real. Do you do you always play the I'll same character? No. Uh, we all rotate. And I also, you sign up for the shows you can do. There's more than enough people. There's like seven people in the cast and there's more than enough people to fill the roles. So... When I got in, I signed up for like the first few months of which Saturday nights I could do. I have plans for some, you know, a, a thing here, a thing there. So I didn't sign oh, up. Oh, yeah. yeah, sure you do. I did. It's it's Moore's birthday in February. I had plans then, yada, yada. Anyway, so uh, that's fun, right? If anyone's in Rochester, you can email me and I will send you. Apparently, it's always sold out. Well, and it's also really expensive, right? Yeah, it's seventy dollars a ticket for a for a wedding dinner. <laughs> well, no, I mean it's a show. Like you know, it's anyway. Right. Well, that's true. I mean, just because I would find the the show part of it painful doesn't mean everybody else would. Yeah, true. Like I don't mind watching a show. I just don't like the whole interactive thing. I don't like to participate in any way. I know you hate it. It's your hell. That's it's it is funny to me, by the way, that podcasting is like completely different for you than talking to people in real life. Like, it's almost like you just think it's us. It's not like I can't, like, let's not make me sound completely insane. I, I do talk to people in real life. Should I mention the paper bag you have over your head when you do it or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we had a couple articles to chat about today that you found. One is from the Daily Cause, and it is about something that we've we've talked about before. And do you want to, it's about Zoe Rosenberg. Do you want to tell people about this article? It's not stuff that people don't know. I just thought it was cool that she wrote an article. I'm glad she got it published on the Daily Cause. I'm being forced to wear a GPS ankle monitor because I rescued a duck. Actually, I'm not sure I did know before I read this that she was wearing an ankle monitor. I did know about her arrest and I did know that she's facing like unbelievable charges. I think if you put them all together and she actually got the maximum sentence on everything, She'd be in prison for 20 years. And basically what she did was rescue a duck. The particular duck she's talking about here is named River. And she found him while she was doing, you know, an undercover operation at Reichardt Duck Farm. And he was really sick. He was stuck on his back. I mean, you see this a lot in the pictures of the ducks in these rescues. It's a, lot, a lot of them, when they go down, they go down on their backs. At least River had had an infection, which was probably in his brain, and it causes them a lot of balance issues. So so even when she tried to you know help him stand up, he couldn't. He wasn't on his back just because he had fallen. He, he was unable to stand up. And so she rescued him. And, you know, they didn't shy away from announcing it. They didn't just steal into the dead of night with these ducks, which they easily could have done. They tried to get the authorities to do something about the cruelty because River was obviously not the only duck who was suffering horrifically and were unable. And instead they got arrested and, you know, are facing unbelievable charges in Sonoma County, which, you know, has become a, a centerpiece of animal cruelty and the defense of animal cruelty. In addition to the ankle monitor, and she's not allowed to leave the county. Like, why can't she leave the county? I mean, I, it's obvious why they're doing the ankle monitor. I mean, obviously, they don't want her to do this again. And also, it's just the humiliation and the, the, the burden of it. But also, they ordered her from possessing chickens, ducks, and other fowl. She runs a, a chicken rescue. The article doesn't make clear how that exactly works. But, you know, it's just good to hear from her. But I think the rest of us all seem to be far more terrified of what's going to happen to Zoe than Zoe does. She's incredibly brave. Yeah. I follow her on Instagram. So I did know about the ankle bracelet. And I have to say, like, well, just to what you just said about her being brave. I mean, she's unflappable. Yeah. No, she really is like nobody else. Yeah. She really is like nobody else. And I'm, I mean, you know, when you were the one who first told me that this happened and I like, I, I mean, it took my breath away. I'm, I'm so upset. Like I'm starting to tear up now because I'm just so upset about it. But thankfully she's like taking every opportunity to get media about it. And like, good on you, Zoe. Like she's one badass. Though, like I said, this should be on the, this should be at the New York Times, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And there's another article that is super interesting. So total pivot here. Uh, this is 
from Eater. And the headline is, New York City will soon be home to 15 robot-run vegetarian restaurants from Chipotle's founder. I think this is so fascinating because to me, it's just complete and total proof that the future is in plant-based eating. Well, I, I mean, I hope you're right. I'm not sure I took that much from it. It just all sounds crazy. These restaurants are going to be called Colonel. That's not like Colonel Sanders. It's Colonel, K-E-R-N-E-L. They're called Fast Casual. They're going to have three employees each. They're opening 15 locations, I think all in New York City. Like, that's really expensive real estate. Uh, so 15 locations. So they are going to be small. The first is going to be early this year. So, you know, we're waiting to hear about it. And yeah, I, it says vegetarian, but I'm sure they'll have vegan options. I mean, I hope it's all vegan, but uh, but we will have to wait to see. A lot of the article is just about using robots instead of, of humans. And, you know, some of that some of that commentary is kind of interesting. I totally disagree with it. This is what the CEO of this new venture said. We're taking a lot of the human interaction out of the process and left just enough. And yet other people are saying some people don't like robots bringing their food to their table or ordering kiosk. What fosters loyal customers is the quality of the food and drink and the human relationships they build. I mean, how often have you built a human relationship with somebody working in a fast food restaurant? I mean, these are just crummy jobs. And the fact that people have to do them isn't... I mean, the benefit to people is that they have a job, any job, but there's there's no there's no loss, I think, in, in going into a restaurant, having yourself served by a robot instead of a human who has a terrible job. I mean, maybe if it's, you know, a really old school kind of restaurant with with lovely servers and, you know, who you get to know, but like live in the present people, these are bad jobs. The real problem though is that they are jobs and people got to live. The more we start using artificial intelligence to to take over jobs, the more we have to start paying attention to the fact that people need universal basic income. They can't be relying on these jobs that are just disappearing. When you make these jobs disappear, well, I'm getting off on a total tangent. I like it. In any case, I'm glad, regardless of whether this is a good idea, I'm glad it's going to be all vegetarian and I wish it was going to be all vegan. And we'll see. We'll see. I want to go so much. I, I'm so curious. Let me ask you something. So I feel like I'm incredibly ignorant about this particular discussion. I just want that to be a huge caveat because I think that I'm going to get emails from people ed educating me, which is fine. Just be nice. Anyhow, the, when we hear about robots taking over, like I know a lot of people, their first thought is, well, then you're putting people out of work. And I have this kind of probably ignorant perspective that, well, that will create other jobs. There will always be other jobs. I think it's a very privileged perspective that I have. As you noted earlier, I have a unique career myself. Uh, but like, it doesn't upset me when I see things pointing to the future, having like, robot waiters, for example. It reminds me of when people say, what are you going to do when we no longer have meat? <laughs> Which, you know, I would love that moment to happen. But it's not like farmers just grow animals. They, We need farmers to live and to eat. So do you think that I'm being ridiculous right now? Or like, what are your thoughts on this? I think it is different. I mean, we have to eat. So there will be always be other food. It's true. We don't have to have people like survive and, and have a decent income. Like that's not a necessity for the rest of us. I don't know what will happen to people. Obviously people need to like be able to live and they should be allowed to live like prosperously. And, and I'm not sure there will always be other jobs. A lot of the jobs that are being taken, they're jobs for people I mean, even though some people may have may have good education and good skills, you know, there are jobs that are can be done by people who don't have those things. And and you can't just like lose your job at a fast food restaurant and necessarily be eligible to to take a more sophisticated job. I mean, people have to be trained, people have to have skills. I think there is always going to be work to be done because care, I mean what what jobs should be is, is care. Like we should be devoting enormous 
resources and hours of people time to caring for for people and animals who need it for the earth for everything there's so much care that could be done but the problem is our our society is not set up and our economy is not set up to pay people for that anyway i you know i'm just talking off the top of my head cuz you brought this up but i i think it's a lot more complicated than the way you're saying it it's not just there are going to suddenly be jobs for people who lose jobs at fast food restaurants they're not going to just like pop up well, all of this is basically a commercial for universal basic income, but that is not our podcast. So we will move back to our podcast. I will look for the right tab. I found it. And let's get to the interview with Jian Yi. Jian Yi is an independent filmmaker and food activist. He is currently a visiting fellow at Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program and is the founder and president of Good Food Fund, a leading initiative in China's food systems transformation, as well as the founder in 2021 of the China Vegan Society. Since 2007, Jian's films have won awards in international film festivals and have been shown across the globe. In addition to many other accomplishments, Jian earned a degree from the Harvard Kennedy School, an MA in Journalism from the Communication University of China, and an MA in Peace Studies from the University of Notre Dame. He will be joining Marianne right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Welcome to our hen house, Jianye. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. I've heard a lot about your work. You've really highly thought of within the animal rights movement. And you're talking about a topic that we all know it's enormously important, but I think so many people in the West feel that they don't really know as much about how China differs from the Western relationship to animals and veganism as they should, both the differences and the similarities. So really a fascinating topic for all, all of us. Of course, we want to get into your own work and that's really important and we're going to do that. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about veganism and about animal rights. And in some ways, these are related topics, but not in all ways. So maybe we can start talking about veganism because there's a really interesting history within China that doesn't exist in the West when it comes to veganism. Could you give us a little of that background? Yeah. To start with, strictly speaking, we didn't have those two terms, animal rights or veganism. Uh, we do have a very long history of eating plant-based, especially in the Buddhist community. But in China, we have a word called su, which can mean both plant-based or vegetarian or vegan. And in the Buddhist context, you eat plant-based because you have a compassion for animals. So in that sense, you turn to vegetarian or vegan diet because you care for the animals. So in that sense, it's similar. But the origin was different. The origin in the Chinese context was that you wanted to cultivate your body and your mind so that you can be mindful of your living. And eating plant-based is part of that, is a vehicle for you to achieve mindfulness and better living. So animal is not the end. Caring for animal is part of how you cultivate that mind and body. Yeah, and I think that way of thinking actually does resonate in other cultures as well. Because even in modern veganism, you hear people talking in those terms. And of course, there are the health benefits as well as the mindfulness benefits. It's good to keep in mind that people are coming from such different directions. And the history, that there is this history, at least in Buddhist culture in China, of not eating animals. And then there's the fact that the cuisine is in large ways plant-based, as so many cuisines around the world are. And this history seems like a really positive thing for the future. I've had people tell me that there are drawbacks to it as well, because not eating animals is sort of seen as a very old-fashioned kind of thing, not a bad thing necessarily, but just kind of part of the past. Is that true? That's right. That's right. So 
we did have that amazing legacy from our ancestors that we have so many amazing ways to prepare vegetables and mushrooms and fungi. So we have really amazing dietary culture around eating plant-based. But there are a few things that we need to bear in mind when we look at modern China. Number one, plant-based eating has been a long time being associated with Buddhist cultivation. So on one hand, that's a historical legacy. On the other hand, it's historical baggage because people tend to associate that with religion. Uh, although many Buddhists don't think this is a very religious practice, but in many ways, it has been very strictly associated with Buddhism. And number two, I think one of the most important reasons we, our ancestors and people in other cultures have been mostly eating plant-based predominantly is that our ancestors knew that our natural resources were finite. So you should use the most precious agricultural resources like your land, your water, and, and other things, and your energy, your time to feeding humans rather than feeding animals and then using animals to feed humans, right? Of course, we, as we know now, it's a very inefficient way of feeding the population. So that's why I think in most cultures, we were predominantly plant-based traditionally. But as we move to a modern life today, you go into a supermarket. I think that's one of the biggest sins of a supermarket is that when you walk into a supermarket, it gives you the fantasy that resources are infinite, right? Because everything is there for you to take. The only thing that is finite is your money. So you walk into a supermarket and you think everything is infinite. In that way, people living in modern China, they feel like plant-based eating is an outdated thing because that's a thing that associated with the past, with poverty, with a lack of resources. That's why people would like to eat more meat because that tend to be a more modern kind of lifestyle. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I haven't heard it expressed exactly like that before. That there's obviously the tradition in many cultures, but China, of course, until recently went through periods of substantial hunger. And that tradition kind of encourages the idea that meat is a luxury food. And once you can afford it, this is a sign of success. This is a step forward. But I hadn't thought of that exactly in the way you connected to hunger as a global issue. Like you go into the supermarket, it just creates this impression that now we can have everything, so why not have meat? It's not just that it's a sign of prosperity. It's just that there's an infinite supply of everything, so why not? That's a really interesting thought, yeah. And also precisely that meat take more resources to raise, to produce. That becomes a, a symbol of prosperity because, look, now I can assume something that consumes more resources, right? Yeah, and think of that individually and even culturally now we have arrived, we're living in the future. Now our whole country can eat whatever we want and, and the world can eat whatever we want because we've won, which is exactly the opposite of what's happening. Right, right. And there's also a cultural nuances there that for hundreds of years, Chinese people, our ancestors, didn't really make much of a distinction between animal-based food and plant-based food. Not, it's not very binary in people's mind. So they always try to seek what they call a balance. So mostly plant-based, a little bit of meat, and meat is used as a flavor. So we ended up not eating too much, but we somehow had it everywhere. Yeah, it's a little different than in the West where we just eat way too much of it. And <laughs> there has certainly been no moral distinction between these two foods, but unfortunately, we just ended up eating really a lot of meat and we'll have to move back from that. Can you talk a little bit, you alluded to this in the beginning, but before we leave this subject, I really want to talk a little bit about the language. And I know that trying to get into Chinese language issues with an American audience might, might get a little too complicated, but there is a big language issue, isn't there? You mentioned there's no word for vegan. Like until something is something in the language, it's hard for people to get their heads around it. That's right. That's right. So as we said, we had a long tradition of eating plant-based, but we have to look at two different contexts there, the context of Buddhist and the context of non-Buddhist. And the context of Buddhist, especially monks and nuns, they are very strict vegans. Okay, so they didn't eat any, any animal-based food. But for people who are in the non-Buddhist context, when they use the same word, su, which for the monks and nuns means vegetarian or vegan, 
It actually means food that makes your body and mind lighter. So it doesn't have to be plant-based. Anything that makes your mind and your body lighter is a soup. And that's the only word we have that it closes to the meaning of plant-based or vegan or vegetarian food. Only recently, we have been focusing more on the distinction between animal-based food and plant-based food. So today, in the, in the context of Chinese language, when we say su, it means plant-based food that excluded uh, animal-based products. So people accept, I mean, that's widespread acceptance that that word's meaning has shifted, or it's something you're trying to encourage? Gradually, that's a gradual process. So actually starting from a hundred years ago, some of the most notable revolutionary figures like Dr. Sun Yat-sen, the founding father of the Chinese nation, he himself was actually an advocate for vegetarian diets for the Chinese population because he thought that it will make the Chinese nation great because with that compassion, with that healthy diet, it would be a great nation. Since then, the concept of focusing on plant-based part of the zoo, so it's not just making your heart and mind lighter, but it's also bringing that compassion, that health aspect to it. Interesting. And I had not realized that Sun Yat-sen was such an early, really kind of a founder of modern veganism within China. Would that make sense? He was. He was. There was this amazing Hong Kong University-based historian, Angela Liang, she actually wrote a, a very good article about that in the 1910s, how Dr. Sun Yat-sen and his fellow revolutionaries, they were advocating for vegetarian China. And he was especially, he was a big fan of tofu. He was very particularly proud of tofu. Him and me. Like tofu is the mere, I, I love tofu so much. I can't understand like there are some people <laughs> who don't like it. Just my favorite food. Campanian, yeah, for that. In one way, China is so far ahead of everybody else when it comes to veganism because of the tofu. So that kind of brings us up to the present. What about now? Is there this link between veganism and animal protection? Or is veganism more focused on this kind of general purity concept or the whole environmental and health concerns? What are the motivations behind people either going vegan, but even if not going vegan, thinking about eating vegan food and, and thinking of that in a positive way. And maybe I shouldn't use the word vegan, but it's the only word I've got. I know. We actually came up with a Chinese character, which we think is a perfect word to be used for vegan in the Chinese context. So what we did was a few years ago, we had an online contest and we had an open call inviting people to sending one Chinese character, which they think best represents veganism, only one one character. And so we had about 10,000 people participating <laughs> and we ended up having about uh, a few hundred candidate characters and we chose one of them. And that character had then been used for centuries. So it's like a obsolete word. But the beauty of the Chinese language is that you don't even have to know. I didn't know when I saw that character the first time, I didn't know how I could pronounce it. But the beauty of the Chinese language is that you don't have to know how to pronounce it. You can just tell by like a picture, right? You can tell how it looks. Right. So that character is, is Mang. It actually has four grass in it. So it means a lot of grass, a lot of vegetation, <laughs> and also means vitality. Oh, that's great. What a perfect word. How do you know how to pronounce it now? If you didn't know, did you make it up how to pronounce it? Like, how did that happen? <laughs> Well, there's, a, there's this thing called dictionary, right? So we can go to a dictionary that has tens of thousands of uh, Chinese characters. Most of them actually are now obsolete. And, and they will tell you, the dictionary will tell you how to pronounce. Okay. But it's very, very like... That's so cool. Yeah, it's a very cool word, I would say, because nobody uses it anymore, but we somehow revive it. Well, it is funny. I mean, there is something funny about it because people sometimes make fun of vegans as just they eat only grass. So it kind of does go, go along with that image that we all we eat is grass. But I love the fact that it's married to the word vitality. I guess it sees grass as more global, not just inedible yeah, grass, yeah. but like wheat and grains. And that's a beautiful word. I love it. How is it pronounced? Mang? Mang. M-A-N-G. That's so cool. Yeah. When I said grass, I didn't mean like you know, grass, grass. I mean, like vegetation. That's great. Yeah. 
All right. So you talked a little bit about how meat abstention is related to, but not directly connected to caring about animals when that differs for different people. So what about now? Is there a strong recognition between people who are embracing veganism and animal protection? To answer your question, I'd like to put that into the context of modern Chinese society. Today, people who are advocating for veganism in China and people who are advocating against it, they are actually fighting for the Chinese-ness of what they are advocating for or against. Why is that? People who are arguing for veganism in China saying that this is the way to go because it's much healthier way. We make the population much healthier. It's good for the environment. It's good for the animals. So all these same reasons that you say here in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world. And people who are arguing against veganism in China, saying that this is something that's imported. That's not something that's Chinese, right? Like in China, we don't talk about animal rights. You talk about animal rights because you're influenced by Westerners. So this is a kind of a very strange kind of phenomenon. So both claim to be more Chinese than the other, right? People are advocating for veganism. They say, look, traditionally, we have been mostly largely vegan. That's very Chinese, right? We have probably one of the most amazing plant-centric culinary culture in the world. So why are you saying this is foreign? This is Western. But then the other side is sort of saying that, look, because you're quoting animal rights, you're quoting climate, you're using exactly the same discourse that this Western advocates. So you are influenced by Westerners. Therefore, this is a Western agenda to undermine China. When China started to talk about climate issues, there were people saying, look, this is the Western agenda. Same here in the U.S. You know, these climate deniers say, look, the climate issue is a Chinese agenda to undermine the U.S. Yeah, it's frustrating in particular when you think of what a small influence animal rights has in Western countries. It's not like everybody's going vegan in the United States. That's right. Uh, So it really makes it feel like just the usual coming up with a reason. But as a result, I would imagine that it's very important as a Chinese advocate to try to put things in a Chinese context. It's very important. Otherwise, they'll backfire. We had so many lessons of that. This backfire, it actually, in a way, is very detrimental to the whole movement because then you were associated with the special kind of cult thing, cult-like thing, or special kind of Western-dominated agenda. So we have to be very, very careful of all this political, economic, social context that we're working in. Tell us a little bit about the current animal protection movement in China. What does it look like? I don't think we have a movement there yet, precisely for the same issue. We have a very different political context. So that's why I don't think there is a movement. And when you say movement, you mean that people somehow are able to talk about these issues in the public and to be able to form more or informal alliances and try to push it into the public agenda. I don't think that that is happening in China. Mm-hmm. There are fragmented things happening. For example, there were people trying to protect wildlife, people trying to work on companion animals. There are people like us who try to advocate for more plant-based and reducing animal-based food. But uh, I think there is something that you can call movement okay. at the moment. But there are, I've always said that no matter where you go in the world, no matter where you're dropped down in the world, you will find some people who care about animals. It's not everybody by any means, but it's not cultural. I, I mean, this feeling, this feeling of they matter, that they're important and that they matter and that we should be kind to them. So I'm just going to go back to one thing, like you said, that Rights are a difficult topic to talk about, but with animals, it's not really just rights, is it? It's also compassion. Is it easier to talk about compassion for animals than it is to talk about it as a political issue? Yeah. If you can somehow connect that to Chinese traditional thoughts, if you could try to connect that to, for example, 
Taoism or Buddhism or Confucianism, then you can more publicly talk about that. Yeah, and I think that caring about animals and seeing it as a global issue, this is such an important fact that it can't be imported. But these traditions, I think, exist everywhere in some way. I really do. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, that's human nature, right? I mean, I have a nine-year-old. He loves animals, right? He grew up loving animals. I can't forget the first time he saw a living animal. I think he was like two years old or something. His eyes was like, wow. You almost feel like he saw a fairy or something. Yeah. Because like, think about that. As a baby, when you first see a living animal, like something that moves, right? Something that has eyes, who has, somehow has something that's like, somehow kind of a spirit like you, right? It's not just like a table or a desk or a toy, right? A, there's something there that connects us as living beings, as thinking yeah. beings. And I think babies, they can sense that, right? They're much more sensible than we thought they are. And they can, <laughs> we can feel that. They're much more sensible than adults, by and large. Yeah. yeah. And it's why you look at any children's literature, it's all full of animals, because the animals are just so important in their consciousness. But unfortunately, some of the children's literature, they're terrible. You know, I can give yeah. you an example. When my son was three years old, I found this actually US published children's book talking about this little pig. He wakes up in the morning with his father. They go to the supermarket to buy groceries. And what they did, they buy pork. Oh my God. They buy beef. They buy chicken. You know, like what? Like how can pigs buy pork? Yeah. I don't want to go too far down that road into one of my topics that drives me crazy. I think that I alluded to children's literature because I do think animals are used within children's literature to try to connect with children. But then it's so often that the animals in children's literature are not real. It's kind of a way to enculturate children to something because they're like people. I mean, they act like people and, and they're just substitutes for people. So there's something going on there, but I've never seen that one. That's particularly horrifying. So what do Western animal advocates get wrong about China? Should Western animal advocates just stay out of China and not try to affect the outcomes at all? Maybe except for products or even products might be problematic. I would say yes, unfortunately. I mean, the food systems here, there's so many issues, right? And yeah. the food here largely is so unhealthy. But what I really like about this country is that there's so many people who are so passionate and so professional, and they're, they're working to change the status quo. So there's so many people in this country that I look up to. But when, when we talk about China and influence in China, I would say let the Chinese people figure out themselves. I don't think criticism from outside China would help at all, because then people in China would just become more and more defensive. And they were also right saying, you know, look, in the U.S., your per capita consumption of meat is much higher, right? And your factory farming is terrible as well. So why, you know? Yeah, I can see how a lot of efforts would have the potential to backfire. I would say that most people in the West don't really know about how bad factory farming is, mostly because they don't want to know and they close their eyes to it. But still, they are somewhat blind to it. Would you say the same is true in China, that the average person who's not at all involved in farming or the average person who lives in a city is kind of unaware of how ugly factory farming is and is becoming in China? That's true. That's true. Like everywhere else, how many people have seen a real pig in their life, right? If you count that, we have many more farmed animals in terms of numbers, than companion animals, right? Dogs and cats. But when you walk out of your door, most likely you will see a dog somewhere on the street. But you never see a pig. Where are they? You never see a chicken. Where are they? So these animals are actually hidden from us. And people just don't have any idea what kind of a life. I hate to use the word life because they don't have a life. Yeah. For lack of a better word, what kind of life they have. It's very unfortunate. I mean, it's our natural tendency, right? When we see unjust things like that, you want to speak out, you want to expose it, you want more people to know about it. Yeah, I mean, there are so many similarities and so many differences, but the level of secrecy and how embedded the system is in both societies is obviously very similar. All right. I said that we were going to talk about your own work. (laughs) And we spent a lot of time just talking about the problem. But you're doing a bunch of things, and I want to talk about them all. But I I really want to talk about this movie, Zodiac 12, because it is the way in which you are approaching a lot of the difficulties that you've addressed, right? And can you tell us about it? 
Yeah. So I became aware of this issue in 2009 when I went vegetarian. I went vegetarian because I saw a friend who, who is vegetarian. He lives a very mindful life. And I somehow felt like maybe I should try that. So my wife and I, we started going vegetarian. And then I made a short documentary called What's for Dinner? That documentary actually explored the environmental impact of meat production. And that became the last straw for me in terms of meat eating, because I was a meat lover. I didn't know anyone who ate more meat than I did. Years after I became a vegetarian, I still got emails from my previous classmates who said, you know, please eat less meat. That's not good for your health, things like that. So since 2009, I've been thinking how we can talk about animals without ruining the opportunities to talk about it. How can you even bring up animals in our conversations? I think that is so well said. That is the big problem, isn't it? I, I was working on an article recently and I wanted to call it, there are none so blind as they who will not see it, which is a Western saying. And I think that you've really perfectly encapsulated that. How can you talk about it in a way that people won't stop listening? Yeah, I think it's very common everywhere, right? So my idea, my thought was, how could we talk about this issue in the Chinese political and cultural context? And somehow I, I came up with the idea of Zodiac because I was thinking back in my own life, and I thought that the animal that I felt closest to was rabbit, because I was born in the year of rabbit. I was born in the 1970s, and China was very, very poor back then. We, we didn't have Lego. We didn't have anything like that. So the only toys that I had were rabbits. Wow. So I feel like I was so close to rabbit that I would never hurt them. So even though I grew up eating meat incrementally, like when I was really young, I didn't eat my meat because we couldn't afford. But then as I grew up, we, I began to eat more and more meat. But I never ate rabbit because I feel like it's so strange. Like if I ate a rabbit, I would feel like I've eaten like some part of myself. And culturally speaking, the zodiac animals are very, very important. People in China, they would look at zodiac to tell their fortune to even decide which year they will get married or who they will get married to and which year they will give birth to their child. For example, there are more popular years like the year of dragon. You know, people prefer having their children born in that year because that will bring good fortune. And ironically, the year of the pig is also very popular because people think pigs are very fortunate because they can just eat and lay there and don't have to work. Maybe we'll talk about that later. So culturally speaking, zodiac animals are very, very important. So can we talk about animals through the lenses of these 12 animals? Because they're so close to us. They are these important cultural icons. Then I happened to have this meeting with Peter Singer, and we talk about that. So I visited him in Princeton in 2018, and then we discussed this, and he, he liked the idea, and he even recorded a message to support the film. And also he invited me for a little tour of Princeton campus, where artist Ai Weiwei is actually exhibiting his artworks, Zodiac 12, at that moment. So basically, the idea is that I will talk about how we relate to non-human animals in our modern world through the lenses of these 12 zodiac animals. And they just happen to represent a wide range of ways people use and abuse animals. So they are farmed animals, they were animals used for fur, they were animals used for experiments, they were animals used for sports, they were wildlife, they were animals used for entertainment. Your animal use for dairy. So, yeah, it just happened to uh, cover almost all the areas. It really is fascinating. I'm familiar with the Chinese zodiac, as most people in the West are, but only very vaguely and really not familiar with, as you're talking about, this deep cultural resonance that this feels very Chinese to people, important part of the culture, and recognizing all of these different animals and all of these different kinds. It's really fascinating. So tell us where you are with the film and what your current plans are. I have been using a few years doing research for the film for two reasons. One is that I try to find the best way to tell the stories, as any filmmakers would do. And secondly, particularly in the past few years, things back in China changed so much, right? Like COVID with other issues. We are living in a very different country now in China. So I have to be very, very mindful of all the changes to decide how the stories will be told. So at this stage, I'm still researching 
It sounds very complex. And then there are the complexities. Whenever you're making a movie about what's happening to animals, you have to find that line between showing people what the truth is and giving them more information than they can manage. And they'll, they just don't want to watch it. So many things are happening to animals that are so horrible that, as we all know, people just shut down if you tell them about it. And showing them is even worse. So there are the political complexities and then there are the emotional complexities of, of making a movie like that. But I think it's just a brilliant idea. I also want to talk about the other work that you're doing. You also have the Good Food Fund and the China Vegan Society. Sounds like they're doing really important work. Can you tell us about the ethos of both of them? I will say one more thing about Zodiac 12 and then I'll talk about Good Food Fund. So in China today, there's not a single book or a single documentary that talks about sufferings of animals in our modern world. Let's not talk about animal rights, right? Let's talk about animal sufferings. Then you can probably make your own conclusion, whether, whether you support animal rights, whether you support animal welfare, whether you support that we should stop abusing animals. Exactly. So there's not a single book or film that talks about this issue. So I hope that by making Zodiac 12, I would fill that vacuum that at least we can find a way to engage people to talk about animal sufferings. And that should be the start of any positive change that could happen. Right? If you can't even talk about the issue, how can you expect positive change could happen? Yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it's also a subject about which people are very happy not to know anything. So if there's nobody talking about it, you're not going to have a lot of people saying, please let me know what's really happening to animals. It has to happen as a result of somebody's intent. So I'm really, really happy to hear that you're working on it. I, I really hope it comes to fruition. But let's go back to the, the question I had asked you about what actually is going on and probably some plans for the future with both the Good Food Fund and the China Vegan Society. Yes, as I said, in 2009, I was invited by Brighter Green, a New York-based NGO, to make this short documentary called What's for Dinner that explores the environmental impact of our meat consumption and meat production. And after that, I've been advocating for the same issue on social media. And then in 2017, eight years after I made the short documentary, I decided to found the Good Food Fund because I wanted to work on food issues. I want to work for issues that can help farmed animals. But I didn't want to work vegan movement upfront because I feel like this issue has to be contextualized before we can have any meaningful engagement. So in 2017, I decided instead of starting something that's focusing on the vegan movement, I started the Good Food Fund working on the larger food systems issue. So we were the first one in China that focused on food systems issue, meaning that we are not a vegetarian or vegan advocacy organization. We're not an organization that advocates for better farming. We're not advocating only for reducing food waste. We're advocating for the transformation of the food systems. In that way, we actually put plant-based in that context. So we were quite successful in, in the sense that we were the first one to talk about, to focus on food system issues in China. And we have a summit every year. And this year we just finished our seventh edition, which was also virtual. We have had the summit virtual since the outbreak of COVID-19. So this year we also had it virtual and we had about 450,000 views of our live stream. Wow. So that's our annual summit. So our annual summit is a way for food systems activists to get together every year to talk about our issues. And we also, every year we publish a good food report, which we collect the best practices in Chinese food systems, which include people or organizations who promote plant-based diet, who promote animal welfare, uh, and of course, that who try to reduce food waste and improve our farming practices. So we have that annual highlight, but we also have been building what we call Good Food China Action Hub, trying to break silos and bring everyone together. So the Good Food Summit is this annual highlight 
that ha- happens once a year. But then during the year, we have the Good Food Action Hub that engage everyone year round. And of course, we have particular subjects like the Mama's Kitchen Project, which we won Rockefeller Foundation's 2050 Vision Prize, which is one of the most prestigious global prize on food systems. So we were the only one who won the prize from East Asia. Here in the U.S., Ben Barber's Stone Barnes and Blue Hill, they also won the same award. So that's good for fund. Then in 2021, five years after I founded the, the Good Food Fund, I feel like that we have built enough social capital through the Food Food Fund to talk about empowering the vegan movement. So in 2021, my colleagues and I, we started the China Vegan Society. And we have a summit every year, which is coming up very soon in November. And we have a vegan festival. We have vegan markets. So we do a lot of things. And we also published China's first vegan food certification system. So you'll be surprised that we have had HALA certification for years, but with this amazing vegetarian vegan tradition, China has never had a vegan food certification Mm -hmm. system until we published it last year. Wow. It's really exciting work, but shows how long it can take to make these kind of changes, but they are happening. It always strikes me whenever you talk about anything going on in China, the numbers like the numbers of people are just mind-blowing. It's easy to just think of it as another country, and it's not just another country. It is an enormous, enormous part of the world, and it's so important. And thank you so much for all you're doing and for telling us about it today on our Hen House. I really appreciate it. It's really fascinating. How can people stay on top of what you're doing? I assume the normal social media channels, anything in particular? Yeah, thank you for having me, first of all. To keep updated of what we've been doing, we have our websites. So the Good Food Farm has its own website and China Vegan Society has its own website. We also use Twitter and all apps, as they call it now, and Facebook and other social media as well. So visit our website or our social media. We need a lot of support. We need a lot of support from around the world. I want that movie to happen too. It sounds like such an exciting project. So thank you so much for joining us today, John Lee. It's really been enlightening. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you like what you're hearing, please consider taking a moment to leave us a friendly review. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Facebook, wherever you listen to podcasts, really, or wherever you're listening right now. Amazing reviews help our hen house to climb the rankings so that we end up in more people's ears where we can join forces to elevate the voices of the animals and those who are working to change the world for them. So thank you so much for taking the time to leave us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. These stories start to repeat themselves. I know they do, but on all three this week, are themes that we hear over and over again. But I think it is reassuring to know that their anxieties continue to rise and rise and rise about many of the same things. One of the things, obviously, (laughs) their anxieties are rising about, but are really haven't come to fruition yet, uh, is cultured meat. It's because it's not really on the market yet, but it gets closer and closer. And, you know, they're trying to head it off at the pass in, as usual, the most inept ways possible. Thank God. All right. So we're talking about some laws. This is from Meat and Poultry, uh, the site Meat and Poultry. Cultured meat faces challenges from state legislators. The first one is from Arizona. This is a doozy. House Bill 2121. And, you know, it's not law. This is just a bill some bozo has introduced. So, you know, don't worry yet. Um, It would ban the sale or production of cultivated meat if enacted. Those who violate the legislation, you know, some secret person like in his basement, like making cultured meat, would face a penalty of up to $25,000. It doesn't say for like, like for each piece of meat or I don't know, for each day. Like, I don't know. Um, The text of the legislation offers two primary reasons, you know, Legislation doesn't have to offer reasons, but they have kindly done so to protect public health. Okay, like, is there any indication that it's bad for you? (laughs) No, but okay. And to protect the state's cattle industry. Well, yeah, that's the purpose of the legislature, to pick certain industries and, and pick them out for protection. 
Uh, and that's really important in Arizona for the cattle industry because the state's, according to, to the legislation, the state's cattle ranching industry is integral to this state's history, culture, values, and economy. Uh, then one wonders why it's so threatened. You know, <laughs> it's so important to people. Oh, are people really what matter here? Uh, I don't know. Arizona's proposed legislation comes in the wake of similar legislation introduced in Florida. That's a little harder sell with the cattle industry. I mean, I know there is a cattle industry in Florida, but you know, uh, that's not really what you think of when you think of Florida. Whereas Arizona, it's a little, it's a little closer. Also, there's a law that actually went into effect, which is, of course much less draconian and ridiculous in Texas. And it requires the labels of cultivated meat. You know, keeping in mind that this stuff is not even on the market yet. Sold in the state to say either cell-cultured, lab-grown, or or similar language. Uh, you know, I, I have no problem with that. I think things should be labeled properly. It also takes aim at plant-based meat alternatives requiring those sold in Texas to have, quote, analog. Well, everybody will know what that means. <laughs> an analog. Uh, you're eating an analog. Sounds like a watch. Meatless, plant-based, made from plants. Uh, or similar language, you know, again, plant-based, made from plants. Of course, of course, they have these requirements about similar text size, which is, you know, probably not, it would mean everybody would probably have to change their label. I don't know. We'll see if there's if there's litigation about that. All right. The, the article does go on to point out that the money that's going into this is growing and growing. There's a company called Meetable from the Netherlands that just raised $35 million. And Clever Carnivore, which is a Chicago-based company, just raised $7 million. It does point out that, that not all states are taking this direction and that California, the University of California, Davis, is going to open an integrative center for alternative meat and protein on January 17th. So that would have been already happened this past week, and it's going to work toward large-scale commercialization and technological advancement of alternative proteins. Yeah, go California. All right, our second story, also hearkening back, just these stories never seem to end. Pork producers speak up about the negative consequences of Proposition 12. You know, you would think that this law, or that somebody had thought of it last week, and they had no preparation, and they're all just caught out. Like, this is, Prop 12 got passed a million years ago and, and insisted on ignoring the possibility that they need to change their, their practices and get rid of gestation crates. But um, no, they just kept assuming the Supreme Court would take care of them. And now the Supreme Court has said, no, it's, California can do that if they want. They're planning their next move, which is, of course, to go to Congress, as we've mentioned before. Pork producers across the country continue, continue, they've been doing it for years, to voice their concerns over how California's Prop 12 could negatively impact family farms. <laughs> oh, my favorite expression, family farms. And are looking to Congress for a solution. They've run out of options in the courts, that's for sure. Then they have these three pork producers who wrote a letter to the editor in Illinois and they noted that if we want to continue farming, like, like who cares if you continue farming? <laughs> I certainly don't. I hope you don't. Prop 12 will undoubtedly raise the cost of producing pork for us and other hog farmers, which jeopardizes an Illinois industry that contributes $3.3 billion in economic value and supports nearly 34,000 jobs. Well, can't we just take that $3.3 billion and put it into that cultivated meat that we were just talking about and hire 34,000 people to do that? Like, like people will continue to eat and they will continue to need food. They also emphasize the importance of California's 40 million consumers. Yeah, that's exactly. I mean, California's voters voted for this. So I'm not sure why Illinois hog farmers are, are expressing such sympathy for them. This uh, board member from the National Pork Producers Council, Todd Marotz, who's from Sleepy Eye, Minnesota. That, I have to say, that's a really nice name for a town, Sleepy Eye. He um, was quoted as saying only 20% of his farm's barns meet the California standard. Well, what has he been doing for the past 10 years? Like, uh, Todd, wake up and smell the bacon. Yeah, because they're still going to die. This is like the most unbelievably minimal improvement in these animals' lives, and they can't even do this. 
He also talks about, and this is scary. I this one is scary. This one is exactly the kind of argument that you know they could manage to get something passed. That it will cause a higher carbon footprint for the pork industry as producers use more energy to heat larger barns in the winter and cool those barns in the summer. Now, obviously, there's a really, really great way of addressing that. Just get rid of the pork industry. But, you know, that's the kind of argument. They're going to use climate change in any way they can, even though they're a major cause of it. According to the National Pork Producers Council, with producers, I don't even understand what this means. With producers facing average losses of $30, sometimes exceeding $40 to $60 on each hog marketed it in 2023, most can't afford the often significant cost of compliance. Like, are they saying that producers lost $30 on every hog? Like, really? What? What? Well, then they should totally go out of business. I think the answer is clear. Nobody listens to me, though. Again, from Meat and Poultry, another favorite theme, HPAI ravages on despite improved safeguards. Now, I haven't been talking about avian flu for a while, but I don't know. And they haven't either. You know, it's just become part of the wallpaper. But I did want to, you know, point out that it continues. And, you know, unbelievable unbelievable consequences for these poor little birds. Uh, And as this article points out prominently, uh, financial implications for the industry, like who that's all they care about. The recent upsurge in the number of cases of highly pathogenic avian influenza and the increasing number of hens euthanized has been concerning, really concerning. And can we go back and talk about my favorite topic? And that is the use of the word euthanized. I'm going to read the definition of euthanasia from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. The act or practice of killing or permitting the death of hopelessly sick or injured individuals, such as persons or domestic animals, in a relatively painless way for reasons of mercy. Uh, The dictionary has not changed the definition, even though... All right. For a long time, euthanasia has been used for animals, Not, not because they're hopelessly sick or injured, but because we don't want them around anymore. Um, and that's been going on for a long time. And that has really, really bugged me. But it was used in the sense that particularly, you know, this may not have always been true, but the implication that they were trying to convey through the use of this word was that it was done in a relatively painless way. So that part of the definition was what they were using the word for. Well, that's been out the window for a long time now because, uh, as has been pointed out by many, many commentators, Crystal Heath in particular, we're not using painless methods, that's for sure. The American Veterinary Medical Association has pretty much signed off on any way you can possibly get rid of these animals. Of course, they say this should only be used, you know, in emergencies, and it should be done quickly and humanely. And they say that depopulation and euthanasia are not the same thing. And then they go on to say, well, if it's really, really bad and, and, and you have to get rid of these birds within 24 to 48 hours and blah, halt virus production, which is probably the case in every single one of these cases, you can use um, ventilation shutdown, which is probably the cruelest method of ever killing anybody. So uh, anything. The definition of that word, like, why don't the dictionaries catch up to the fact that this word is widely used in ways that that they are not using it for? They're not defining. Isn't that what dictionaries are supposed to do? It's just totally ignored. And they're allowed to use this word euthanasia, uh, which implies, you know, some sort of kindness. It is absolutely the most brutal. The only reason they're being killed is because... Well, they're sick, but the, it's, their sickness isn't incurable. It's just that nobody would bother to, you know, try to cure them. Anyway, getting back to this article. All right. Since the initial 2023 HPAI, that's highly pathogenic avian influenza, detection in commercial egg-laying flock was reported on November 3rd. So there's been a huge upsurge very recently since November. There have been 16 cases in five states. All right. You might think, well, 16 birds, that's a shame. No, there's 16 cases. The number of birds is 12.9 million euthanized as of December 28. Euthanized. 12.9 million. Then it just goes on to talk about prices and supply and stuff I just could not care less about. 
The number of laying hens euthanized in December 2023 totaled about 7.8 million, more than double the number destroyed in December 2022. So things are getting actually worse, even though we don't hear about it nearly as much. And the article points out that that wild birds spread it. Of course, it you know the reason the wild birds get it is because it it develops in these huge, huge chicken houses, and then the wild birds get it. The wild birds get sick too, but they also spread it from one flock to flock. I don't know how dare I use that word from one to the other. So it's doing double harm. Uh, they're creating this this disease. They're spreading it amongst their own birds, and then it spreads to wild birds, and then the wild birds spread it to somewhere else. They don't talk about all of that, though. They they just talk about the wild birds are basically the cause. But they do point out that the disease in many cases was also spread by people and trucks traveling between poultry operations and say they've tried to fix that, but I'm sure they haven't. Since the first outbreak, uh, which was on February 8th, 2022 through December 30th, 2023, we're talking 80 million birds of all species have been quote unquote euthanized due to HPAI. Get rid of this industry, okay? Just get rid of it. It's horrifying. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. That's it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. Visit ourhenhouse.org support to check out our tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can become part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include being part of a community with great alliteration. I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding. But some of the real perks include weekly bonus content and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me for a live recording of an Our Hen House podcast episode, followed by an opportunity to meet with the guests. And since Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts or leave us a friendly review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Also, like us on Facebook where you can also leave us a review or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Our Hen House. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to Veronica Kalinska who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. And special thanks to Jen Riley. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so much for your support, compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.